You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. As months go, April can be kind of cruel, huh? Take 1986, for example, when the fourth month of the year got off to a rollicking start with a special kind of April Fool's Day prank, the grounding of a nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarine, the USS Nathaniel Green. Eyewitnesses say that she sat alone in row 10, that her tray table was down throughout the Cairo to Athens flight, that she spent much of the time listening to what appeared to be a cassette player, the picture of a casual traveler. But Doug Tunnell reports tonight she, or possibly a he dressed as a she, may actually have been the murderer who killed people on TWA Flight 840. The next day, a bomb planted by the Arab revolutionary cells went off on a Boeing 727 above Argos, Greece, blasting a hole in the right side of the passenger compartment that killed four people. Investigators in Athens piecing together the puzzle of the TWA bombing say they have evidence that a woman traveling under the name May Elias Mansour planted the bomb. Three days after that, another bomb went off in La Belle, a discotheque in West Berlin. Everything went black. You couldn't see anything. My eardrums must have burst immediately because I felt like I was underwater. Things happened quickly, but also in really slow motion and surreal like a dream. I was very calm. I just thought, okay, this is where you die. LaBelle was a nightlife spot for American soldiers stationed in Germany, and the bombing killed two American service members and injured 79 more. U.S. intelligence suggested Libya was responsible for both attacks and that Muammar Gaddafi had personally approved the Berlin bombing. So America did what America does best, bombed some shit. At 7 o'clock this evening, Eastern Time, air and naval forces of the United States launched a series of strikes against the headquarters, terrorist facilities, and military assets that support Muammar Gaddafi's subversive activities. The attacks were concentrated and carefully targeted to minimize casualties among the Libyan people with whom we have no quarrel. In announcing Operation El Dorado Canyon to the American people, President Ronald Reagan insisted that pains had been taken to avoid civilian casualties. But wouldn't you know it, they hadn't. Despite the use of precision bombing methods, some weapons landed off target in a number of city areas. There were civilian casualties, perhaps as many as 300. Hospital wards began to fill up. In the Tripoli suburb of Bin Ashur, Close to the Libyan National Security Building, the French embassy was hit. The Swiss and Iranian embassies were also slightly damaged. The world was, as always, teetering on the brink of war. There was a bombing by Basque separatists in Madrid, the explosion of a Titan rocket out of Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, the national release of Crocodile Dundee, and Geraldo Rivera wasting everyone's time. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the old Lexington Hotel, where 60 years ago, during the height of the Roaring Twenties and Prohibition, this once lavish building 
belonged or was the headquarters for the notorious gangster Al Capone. Directly beneath me, in this hotel's rubble-strewn basement, a massive concrete chamber has been discovered, and there is evidence to suggest that that vault once belonged to Al Capone, the richest and most powerful gangster of his time. Now what, if anything, that vault contains, we don't know. This is an adventure you and I are going to be taking together, because one way or the other, the mystery is going to be solved tonight. We're going to break open that vault, and we're going to step inside. Yes, April 1986 was shaping up to be an especially cruel month. Even before... There has been a nuclear accident in the Soviet Union, and the Soviets have admitted that it happened. The Soviet version is this. One of the atomic reactors at the Chernobyl atomic power plant near the city of Kiev was damaged, and there is speculation in Moscow that people were injured and may have died. The Soviets may have been fairly quick to acknowledge the accident because evidence in the form of mild nuclear radiation had already reached beyond the Soviet borders to Scandinavia. Yeah. April of 1986 was turning out to be a downer, even by T.S. Eliot standards. Which is why I'm surprised that accounts of bright spots, of good news, the proverbial water-skiing squirrels of the news media, are so difficult to track down for April 1986. You'd think that the shadow of nuclear Armageddon and war would have made the high points of April 1986 pop. But no. It's just fairy sinking in Bangladesh this, and massive Los Angeles library fire that. Going by the nightly news, you would never know that April 1986 marked the end of the longest war in modern history. And one of the stupidest wars ever fought. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Like clockwork, I take a little extra time at the end of the year planning to relax and enjoy the holidays. And instead, I make a huge block of dense science history. But that's done with now, and it is time to actually spool down and try to enjoy some lighter stories. Like these ones. On the most bubblegum subject of them all, man's inhumanity to man. Today, we're telling war stories. Stupid war stories. This week's episode, This Means War. You've heard of the Seven Years' War and the Hundred Years' War, but our first stupid war laps them both. The 335 Years' War. Counting back from April 1986, it began in March of 1651, which puts us at the tail end of the British Civil Wars, which I gave a bit of an overview of a few months back in The War on Christmas. But you probably know the general idea anyway. Oliver Cromwell and his Puritan Roundheads versus King Charles I and his Cavaliers, along with the Irish and Scottish who could be fighting for either or neither side depending on the month. But by the month of March, 1651, Cromwell was on his way to conquering both Ireland and Scotland, which were being led by Charles II. Back in England, the Royalist army was all but entirely extinguished. Its navy, though, was a different matter.
Most of the British Navy had defected away from Cromwell's Parliament in 1648, siding with the monarchy and providing a brief hope that Prince Charles would be able to rescue his dad, the king, whom Cromwell had imprisoned on the Isle of Wight, and recapture the throne. Those hopes were extinguished entirely when Cromwell had King Charles executed in 1649, but even before that they were significantly dimmed, when it turned out Prince Charles's new mutinous navy was disorganized and low on supplies. Most of the ships had surrendered and returned to Parliament by the end of the year. With the king dead and royalist rebellions put down, the monarchy was pretty much doomed. Prince Charles took a couple of the remaining ships to Ireland, then Scotland, where he was christened King Charles II, and led the unsuccessful defense against Cromwell's invasions. The other royalist ships couldn't possibly stand up against the parliamentarian navy, but there was another way for them to aid the cause. Piracy! The answer is always piracy. The leftover ships broke up into two fleets, with the mission of disrupting trade, stealing resources, and sowing chaos for the British Commonwealth. The larger and more powerful fleet was helmed by Prince Rupert of the Rhine, who led a large grouping of Parliament Navy ships on a prolonged chase and siege across Europe. The smaller fleet retreated to the last remaining royalist land in England, the Isles of Scilly. Under the governorship of John Granville, the privateers of Scilly waged a piracy campaign against any ships they could reach, hoping to enrich the royalist coffers and to disrupt Commonwealth trade, particularly the Commonwealth's trade with the Netherlands. The Dutch Republic had only just managed to secure independence from Spain after their own interminable conflict, the Eighty Years' War, which concluded in 1648. The Dutch had succeeded in large part because of support over those eight decades from the English, and the country's continued existence depended primarily on keeping in Great Britain's good graces. So, when civil war had engulfed England, the Netherlands had some quick math to manage. If they backed the losing side, they'd be saying, Varwell Netherlands, hola España. By 1651, there was little question who had won control of England, so the Netherlands happily allied themselves with Cromwell, which made them prime targets for attack by the Silly Pirates. The Silly Pirates! My kingdom for a Silly Pirates theme song! I guess that'll do. The Silly Pirates lashed out, attacking, sinking, and capturing ships throughout the English Channel, including, importantly, a number of Dutch merchants. They made enough trouble that the Netherlands eventually found the situation intolerable and sent Admiral Martin Harpensoont Tromp to deal with things. For a moment, that might have seemed like a good deal for Cromwell. He could continue paying attention to Ireland and Scotland and let the Dutch handle the silly pirates. But then somebody realized that if Tromp conquered the islands, 
he might conquer the islands and claim them for the Netherlands. Ally or no, the Commonwealth wasn't happy to let a foreign nation take a small chunk out of their potential holdings and set up a stronghold just miles off their shores. So, the Commonwealth Navy made steam to Scilly, convinced Admiral Trump to hold off, laid siege to Scilly, invaded, and forced the surrender of John Granville. The last royalist stronghold in England was defeated. The Scilly Isles were brought under Commonwealth control, and the castle was razed to the ground. Everything clean and simple. Except that, before Robert Blake arrived with the British Navy, Trump had attempted to deal with the Sillies himself, demanding they cease attacking Dutch ships and return all the pilfered goods. John Granville had refused. So, Trump had declared war on the Silly Isles. A war which was interrupted by the Commonwealth before a shot could be fired, and a war which, then, was forgotten for 335 years. The 335 Years War isn't the only example of a conflict which only existed by dint of forgetfulness or negligence, or, as they're sometimes referred to in international relations, wars extended by diplomatic irregularity. Costa Rica declared war on Germany during World War I. But because the leader of Costa Rica was Federico Tanaco, a dictator who came to power via an illegitimate military coup, he wasn't invited to the Treaty of Versailles, leaving Costa Rica in a de facto state of war with Germany until the rest of the world caught up, redeclared war on Germany, and defeated the Third Reich in 1945. When the Russo-Japanese War broke out in 1904, the Kingdom of Montenegro, which owed its independence at least in part to the Russians who defeated the Ottoman Empire in 1878, showed its support to their liberator by declaring war along with them on Japan. It was a purely symbolic gesture since Montenegro didn't have a navy and sent no army. But the problem with symbolic gestures is that nobody considered the symbolism when it came time to end the anything-but-symbolic war in the Sea of Japan. Japan. Montenegro was neglected in the negotiations and so remained in a state of war with Japan until 2006. Kind of, I mean. Montenegro ceased to be an independent country after World War I, but when they regained their independence in 2006, Japan formally declared the state of hostility between the two nations over. Which was nice of them, even if neither the war nor one of the two nations really existed for most of that state. The Spanish town of Wiskar officially declared war on Denmark in 1809 over their support of Napoleon, and then forgot about it until 1981. And for over a century, the English town of Berwick-upon-Tweed believed they were unilaterally at war with Russia over diplomatic irregularities surrounding the Crimean War, though that seems to have just been a local legend run amok. Arguably, the dutch Silly War isn't the longest continuous conflict in history, because technically, Rome didn't make peace with Carthage after the Third Punic War. That is because Rome 
entirely obliterated Carthage, killing or enslaving every last person in the country and seizing the entirety of their lands, so there was no Carthage with which to make peace, but still, technically, no peace. Not until 1985, at least, one year before the end of the Dutch Silly War, when the mayors of Carthage and Rome held a PR stunt to shake hands and declare friendship after 2,000 years. Like Berwick and Carthage, there are a strong half-dozen reasons to say that the 335 years' war between the Netherlands and the Scilly Islands never really existed either. For starters, the Scilly Isles were never a sovereign nation for Sirius or Scilly, and it's not at all clear that Admiral Tromp had the power to declare war anyway. Even if he did, presumably whatever war he was waging would have been concluded when Scilly rejoined the British Commonwealth with whom the Netherlands were allied. So that's three strikes, but there are plenty more to go. See, the next year, 1652, Admiral Tromp's fleet encountered their British counterpart. There was increasing friction between the two countries, largely relating to trade disputes over the Americas. The British had gotten very grumpy over how much business the Dutch were doing, and so they instituted a bunch of new tariffs and rules to show their lack of appreciation. The most absurd of these rules was that the British Navy insisted that all other ships lower their flags to them to show that they were the, and this is a quote, Lords of the Seas. When Admiral Tromp was intentionally slow to honor this request, the English Navy fired. A battle ensued, and the English declared war on the Netherlands. Naval war raged until Tromp was killed by sniper fire at the Battle of Schnevengen. On April 5, 1654, Oliver Cromwell signed the Treaty of Westminster with the States General of the Netherlands, putting an end to the Anglo-Dutch War. Or I should say, the First Anglo-Dutch War. In 1665, the restored King Charles II tried to get his son, Prince William III of Orange, installed as ruler of the Dutch Republic by means of capturing as many Dutch merchant vessels as possible and holding them hostage. This led to the Second Anglo-Dutch War, which went on until Charles gave up and sued for peace in 1667. Five years later came the Third Anglo-Dutch War, when Charles was obliged to attack the Netherlands as part of a treaty with France. And then the American colonies rebelled and the Dutch supported them, causing the Fourth Anglo-Dutch War, which lasted until 1784. The Dutch were defeated by Napoleon and then fought against Great Britain in a whole bunch of wars over the first half of the 19th century. In total, there were at least six peace treaties struck, including Great Britain and the Netherlands, during the supposed 335 years' war. But none of them specifically addressed the 1651 Declaration Against Scilly. And in 1986, the chairman of the Isles of Scilly Council wrote to the Dutch embassy to settle the rumor that had been ringing for more than three centuries. Was the Netherlands still at war with Scilly? The answer obviously should have been no. But when the Dutch embassy got down to the nitty gritty, they had to admit the matter was unclear. Technically speaking, they had no documentation marking the end of Tromp's war against the islands. So, 
On April 17th, 1986, smack dab in the middle of a month so cruel, it began with bombings and ended with Chernobyl. Dutch ambassador to the United Kingdom, Jonkir Gerekapper, left London, traveled southwest to Cornwall, boarded a ship, and landed on Scilly to finally sign a peace treaty between his nation and the barely inhabited islands. It must have been awful, he told the islanders, to know we could have attacked at any moment. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. While the Dutch Republic waged its ceaseless, tyrannical war on the Isles of Scilly, it was subjected to another Scilly war much closer to home. It was 1784, and any way you cut it, the Dutch were at war with Scilly at that time because they were at war for the fourth time with Britain supporting the American Revolution. And Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II saw that as an opportunity. For the last 300 years, Amsterdam had barred trading ships in the Scheldt River, cutting off Antwerp and Ghent, which were under Austrian rule. With the Dutch distracted by their conflicts with the Brits, Joseph thought he finally had a way to change that. He sent three ships up the Scheldt to force their way through Amsterdam, led by a heavily armed merchant vessel called La Louis, which flew the emperor's own flag as a show of its office. 
Granted, not the most frightening flotilla ever floated, and Austria didn't have much in the area to back them up, but Emperor Joseph was making a bet that the Dutch had even fewer resources to defend itself and that the Republic wouldn't dare fire upon Austria's ships. He was half right. As La Louis and its two consorts approached Amsterdam, the city sent out a single ship to confront them, the Dolphin. The Dolphin was small, lightly armed, and all on its lonesome. But what it lacked in uh, everything else, it made up for in verve. Facing the might of three larger vessels, armed to the teeth and backed by the might of the Holy Roman Empire, technically, the dolphin didn't even blink. She fired a single shot, straight at La Louise's deck. It was, perhaps, the single most decisive shot in military history. The Austrian navy was dumbstruck, demoralized, shook. La Louis and friends had no choice but to turn around, tuck tail, and return to Antwerp, where they informed Emperor Joseph of the tragic loss. The Dolphin's cannon had, in cold blood, taken the life of La Louise's soup kettle. A perfectly good kettle of soup lost before its prime. That's not the sort of thing the Holy Roman Empire could accept. Joseph declared full-out war on October 30th, 1784, and the Kettle War began. Sorta. Austria sent a division of soldiers over the border and occupied a single fort, while the Dutch tried to raise a militia. But before any real hostilities could kick off, France stepped in and told everyone to knock it off. The Scheldt remained closed to Antwerp, although the Dutch at least agreed to pay them an annual fee for the trouble. While there are some poorly sourced reports of Austrian soldiers breaking dikes and drowning Dutch civilians, the soup kettle is the only known official casualty. Which makes the Kettle War the second most embarrassing military defeat of Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II. disclosure, we have already covered the story of Emperor Joseph's most embarrassing military defeat in an episode entitled Turks Turks, but here is the deal. That episode is fully five years old, and while I was just going to suggest you go back and listen to it, I then made the terrible mistake of listening to it myself for like 45 seconds, and it is audio poison. Like, if you have been listening to this show since 2018 and just kept at it, I owe you a Coke. Man, between the microphone and whatever the hell Nate DeMeo impression I was doing, it is torture. So, since we are on the subject of stupid wars and we're all queued up on Emperor Joseph II, or Empy Joe Dose as I like to call him, I figure it's time to set things right and retell the story we previously called Turks Turks. And if that story never actually happened, ah well, we will cross that bridge when we're burning it. 
Joseph II, Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, although it hadn't really been the Holy Roman Empire for a good long while, was a better leader in peace than at war. Or he would have been, anyway, if he'd had the chance. He ruled the Austrian Empire between 1780 until his death in 1790, and from the moment he took the crown, he had an ambitious domestic agenda. More education, more religious freedom, greater economic freedom. He moved to abolish serfdom and the death penalty. He ended censorship, reformed the tax code and land rights, and unified government bureaucratic structures. Joseph's end goal was to remake the Austrian Empire in the image of the Enlightenment. And he did a decent job. Who knows what more he could have done if he hadn't been nearly constantly dealing with wars. Yes, Joseph would have been a great peacetime leader, but unfortunately for him, he was allied with Catherine the Great. In contrast to Joseph, Catherine, Empress of Russia, was one of the all-time great war leaders, up there with Charlemagne, Alexander, Napoleon. Under her rule, Russia expanded over and over again into Crimea, into Georgia, into Poland, all the way east even to Alaska. But Catherine's greatest territorial obsession was the Ottoman Empire. And every time she went to war to get more Turkish land, Joseph was obliged by treaty to follow her into battle. Most historians agree Joseph was afraid of Catherine, and like, <laughs> rightly so, he spent most of 1787 trying to mollify her, working to convince her to please not go to war with Turkey again. And in a sense, it worked. Catherine agreed not to declare war on the Ottomans, but instead she did everything she could to needle the Turks into declaring it on her. And it worked. In August 1787, the Sublime Port, the central Ottoman government, declared war on Russia, and Joseph's Austrian Empire sighingly resigned itself to join the fray. The last time he had been forced into fighting on Catherine's behalf in 1783 and 4, he'd gotten nothing out of it. Russia had walked away with Crimea, and Joseph had lost territory to the Ottomans. So, if the Holy Roman Empire had to go to war again, and it did, this time they would put their backs into it, really make a show. So Joseph, despite his own failing health, raised a number of armies to stake out the whole of the border between his Habsburg Empire and the Turks. The largest of these armies he led himself, right to the front door of Belgrade, where the camp sat dying of malaria for six months, awaiting the chance to advance on Transylvania. In September, word reached Joseph that the Ottoman Empire was on the march and had crossed the Danube. Though he and his troops were both sick and disheveled, Joseph insisted on taking command of an army 100,000 strong to meet the Turkish forces. And it is that army who, on September 22nd, 1788, found themselves spending the night in Karen Sebes, in modern-day Romania. 
Karen Sebes is located at the confluence of the Timis and Sebes rivers, which at this point formed the western front of the war, with Austria holding the east and the Ottomans in the west. As the Austrian army bedded down, they knew that the Turks were somewhere close. Maybe they were a couple of days away, or maybe they were right around the bend. Tensions were high, everyone was on alert, scouting units, at least one cavalry and one infantry, were dispatched to check the west bank of the river for the enemy. A little while later, the camp heard something. Two things, really. The first was unmistakable. A gunshot from the other side of the water in the dark. Moments later, a call from the same location. Some of the scouts were out there, yelling back across the river to the camp. Turks! Turks! they cried, over the sound of more gunfire. And with that, the Battle of Sebes had begun. While the Austrian army was technically at the ready, they were still woefully unprepared for a midnight raid. When the battle cry went out, some of the troops apparently began to flee immediately back east into the night. Arguably, that was a smart move. As the non-deserters tried to form themselves up into defensive lines, they heard the galloping approach of cavalry, charging full bore across the river and into the ramshackled army, yelling, Allah! Allah! While the infantry tried to repel the charge, other gunfire started going off within the camp. It seemed the Turks had gotten the jump on the Austrians from all sides. More panic. Soldiers fired in all directions at shadows. More abandoned and ran for it. Some reportedly jumped in the river. I don't know why. I don't know what benefit jumping in the river would confer. But reportedly, some of them did. An officer called for artillery to be fired into the cavalry charge but said cavalry charge was, by that time, more like an everyone scrum, so the cannons were firing basically indiscriminately. And indiscriminate firing was the name of the game for everyone. Anyone who wasn't abandoning camp, at least, was instead panic shooting. The abandoners were also producing trouble. They overturned carts and carriages, broke weapons, squished supplies, and mowed over one another in their attempt to get away. Joseph was awoken by the chaos, but he was, at this point, so sick that he couldn't provide much leadership. He managed to mount up in hopes that he could encourage his men to hold the line, but by the time he made his way to the front, well, <laughs> there was no front. Just a big, messy stew of disorganized melees and screaming retreats. As the sun rose on Karensebes, the Austrian army had already abandoned it and withdrawn to the east. The casualties were 10% of Joseph's fighting force. That is 10,000 men, dead, injured, or AWOL. The Turks took control of Karensebes. But not until two days later, when their forces arrived. Because... There were no Turks at the Battle of Karensebes. Let's rewind, shall we? Back to the cavalry unit, which was sent across the river to scout for Ottoman forces. 
They didn't find any, but what they did find, instead, was a group of civilians. Some accounts say those civilians were traitors, most say they were Roma. Whoever precisely it was the scouts ran into, they had alcohol to sell. Again, some differences here, some accounts say it was brandy, others say schnapps, whatever. The important thing to know is that the Austrian cavalry bought a bunch of booze and began to drink themselves stupid. So far, so good. I mean, as we know, the Turks are still a two-day march away, so what's the difference if your advanced team is soused, right? Remember, though, there's a second scout group, infantry, out there, too, and they happened to stumble upon the drunken cavalry unit, who by this point were straight-blasted and having a gay old time. And you might think that we are headed towards a case of mistaken identity here, but that is not quite right. The infantrymen recognized their horseback counterparts and approached, asking if they could join the party. Which you'd think would be cool, right? They're brothers in arms, after all, sent out on adjoining missions in the dangerous dark while the rest of their confederates get to rest in camp. What possible reason could there be to not invite your fellow Austrians in for a good shared glugging? Well... There were a couple of things. For one, the Austrians weren't really Austrians, and they especially weren't the same class. Cavalry were officers, professionals, upper crust. They didn't associate with lower infantrymen. And to be fair to the snobby horsemen, the infantry of the 18th century Austrian army were pretty lowly. There weren't any background checks or other kinds of vetting for who could join up, so military service was a good way for fugitives to avoid capture and punishment. Still, it's probably mostly good old-fashioned classism that caused the cavalry to answer, mind if we have some, with sawed off. But sawed off, the foot soldiers did not. Instead, an argument ensued. It escalated into a screaming match, a fist fight, a wrestling match, and then, finally, somebody fired. The gunshot wasn't aimed at anyone, it was apparently meant as intimidation or something, and whoever had the bright idea to scream Turks Turks apparently just thought it'd be funny? I don't know, but they were drunk, remember. It probably sobered them up a bit when the return fire started pelting them from their own base back across the river, though. It was a collective, oh shit, moment for both units, and everybody made the split-second decision to gun it back for camp, hoping to avoid getting in trouble, or were still getting shot. So when, back in camp, the front line faced down a cavalry charge, what they failed to realize was that it was their own cavalry, sprinting back to them for safety. The shouts they heard, Allah Allah, were, in actuality, German calls of Halt Halt. The reason that the Austrian forces felt surrounded is that they were by each other. And that is how, on September 22nd, 1788, the Holy Roman Empire lost the Battle of Sebes to themselves. So, here we are, on the bridge, torches lit, with the question, did this happen? Short answer, no with a but, long answer, yes with an if. 
The best reason to doubt this account is that this story, as you've just heard it, failed to coalesce into a static narrative until 1831. That is 43 years after it purportedly occurred. That isn't to say that the story sprung fully formed out of nowhere. There are earlier reports, even contemporaneous reports of Karen Sebes, but they all differ considerably. Some of these differences aren't very materially important. Whether the army was at camp or on the march, whether the scuffle began with bands of scouts or two full columns, but other contradictions are more substantial. In the German Politsch's journal, published 1788, no mention is made of the brandy and or schnapps or the ensuing fight thereover. Instead, the incident is put up to regular old fog of war. That report further mentions that during the fray, the Turks actually did attack, only to withdraw once they realized the confusion was already doing the job for them. At least one contemporary source attests to the basics of the incident, but says the whole thing was incited by a group of rowdy locals who rode into camp shouting Turks, Turks, and lighting fires in order to purposely confuse and rile the soldiers. One of these documents, an article in Real Zeitung, says eight of the Wallachians were caught and hung. But the most critical aspect of disagreement is the number of casualties. Where the Austrian military journal of 1831 and most subsequent tellings puts the number of losses at 10,000, most of the earlier accounts come to much smaller figures, a couple dozen, a hundred, even 1,200. Still pretty embarrassing numbers, but nowhere near 10,000. It's possible, though, that the high number includes not just those killed and injured, but also those who went AWOL. Two of the reports I've read make mention of lots of soldiers either running away or being lost, although according to both of those pieces, the majority of the missing were eventually found or returned. The case to be made for the version of the story I just took up your time telling feels admittedly like special pleading. Historians in favor of it say that the reason the real story took so long to make it to print is because of what an embarrassment the situation was. That there was something like a cover-up. But covering up 10,000 dead and injured is a pretty tall task. Still, if we accept the bit about the casualties having been misstated to include the displaced and deserting, we can piece together a version that's basically like that of above. That Joseph's army was in low spirits that might drive them to drink and fight is not at all far-fetched. That the troops might not be able to communicate or might misunderstand one another, such as with the halt-halt confusion, is also reasonable. The Austrian army was a patchwork of nationalities and languages. There were Austrians, of course, but also Germans and French, Czechs and Poles, Serbs and Croats. The Holy Roman Empire was essentially too big for its britches, with a whole bunch of people who had nothing, not even a language, in common, being asked to coordinate and fight under miserable conditions. So, if there was ever an army in all of history positioned for such a humongous cell phone, the one led by Emperor Joseph II was it. And there is at least one other army who seems to have fallen in much the same way. 
In 279 BC, the Gallic leader Brennus led an army into the Greek mainland, defeating Macedonian, Athenian, Aetolian, and Phocenian armies on his quest to reach and plunder the Temple of Apollo at Delphi. But upon reaching the city, there was a great and frosty storm that made their advance impossible. They were routed by Greek forces in the morning and retreated. That night, after a forced march back north, there was some confusion, and a panic fell over Brennus's army, who attacked and killed one another, thinking, erroneously, that the Greeks had caught up to them. Brennus then committed suicide in shame, leaving his men to scatter and run. As with the Austrians, the Gallic army was made up of a rough and tumble assemblage of rival clans and countrymen speaking in different tongues and dialects. Of course, it is also possible that Brennus's story is exaggerated or made up. It comes down to us from two Greek historians who had plenty of reason to envision a world in which an attack on their country was foolhardy hubris. And one of those historians says that Brennus's method of suicide was drinking undiluted wine because the Greeks believed that wine had to be mixed with water or else it was poisonous. And since I am relatively confident that that is not true, it leaves some doubt as to the accuracy of things. I do not know what happened at Karensepes. To me, it seems unlikely that the tale was made up whole cloth, but the account that's come down through time seems unlikelier still. What I do know is that the story of Karensebes is a suspiciously convenient allegory. It's perfectly microcosmic of how Austrians might have viewed the whole of the war. A sick and confused emperor leading an unprepared and unmotivated army of drunken classist foreigners into a useless, costly excursion for no appreciable goal. See. After the Battle of Karensebes, the Austrian army managed to regroup, and they eventually won the war, after three grueling years in 1791. But their victory was almost entirely Pyrrhic. They took next to no spoils or territory. Just as it had been years before, and just as Joseph had tried to avoid, in the end, it was Catherine the Great who really won, having gotten Joseph to lay down his own men as pawns for her expansionist cause. Emperor Joseph II never saw the victory, whatever its character. His health deteriorated so much after the retreat that he had to return to Vienna in November, where he took to his sickbed. With his army fighting the Ottomans, Belgium and Hungary both revolted against Austrian rule. Throughout the rest of the empire, peasant revolts and bread riots seized the country. Not a single nobleman came to his defense. Even his brother Leopold abandoned him to die. In January of 1790, a year before the war came to an end, Joseph withdrew all of his reforms and dreams for a peacetime Enlightenment kingdom. He died a month later, on February 20th. You can visit him in Vienna's imperial crypt, where 143 Habsburg royalty are entombed, among them 12 emperors and 18 empresses. But you'll know Joseph's when you see it, by its curious epitaph. As one of his last wishes, he himself 
ordered the inscription. Here lies Joseph II, who failed in all he undertook. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound, Visiger, Kevin McLeod, Kirk Asameo, and Eggy Toast. Special thanks go out today to everybody who helps make this show possible, with a special emphasis on two special patrons, Jens Halverson and GMV. If you would like to join them, have I got good news for you! If you head over to patreon.com slash theconstant, you can sign up to support the show and get... You know what you'll get, I say it every time, you'll get early and ad-free access to new episodes, as well as monthly bonus content on the secret feed. You've heard me say it before, and you've thought about doing it too, but this time is different, because this time, you're following through. Gosh, I'm proud of you, and grateful too. We've got a whole bunch more stupid war stories to tell. Catch them in two weeks. Until then, from Chicago, Illinois, where two rival self-described micronations once went to war over... I Let's save that one for another time, actually. This has been The Constant. Naval war raged until Trump was killed by sniper fire at the Battle of Sh- uh, Why? Shaveningen. I doubt it. I doubt it, lady.